Isn't it awkward talking about death? We're all going to die in the end, yet somehow death is still seen as one of society's taboos. Dead Good brings the conversation to the forefront by asking those questions you want to know but might have been too afraid to ask. I'm Sajila Kershi, and in this podcast series, I'll be speaking to some of my favourite people, from comedians, actors and beyond, about their experiences of death, and in doing so, challenge the taboos that exist within society. Today, our guest is Shobana Galati. Shobana is a British actress, writer and dancer. Shobana played Anita in the award-winning Dinner Ladies, Sunita in Coronation Street, and is one of the few actors to have appeared in both Corrie and EastEnders. In this episode, we talk at length about the deaths of her father and, more recently, her mother. We cover a range of things, from dreaded phone calls in the middle of the night, dementia and caring for her mum, being the producer of her mother's funeral, how grief and love are intertwined and the experience for Shobna of writing the critically acclaimed Remember Me. She's a good friend of mine, and I found this conversation absolutely fascinating, especially her refreshing approach to her mother's dementia. Now, obviously, you know what the program's about, so shall we just get stuck into death, as it were? Why not? What was your relationship with death growing up in terms of, you know, how did you view it? I really, really didn't have a relationship with death growing up as as a child. And I'd say the first impactful death was the death of my father. I think I was too young when my grandparents on my dad's side passed away and I didn't really that didn't sort of sort of hit me because they were so far away they were in India and I didn't really have that much of a relationship with them I I mean I met them when I was a little girl but I didn't sort of think about it as such as uh, you know me never seeing them again because I hardly saw them I think my father and mother protected me quite a lot and protected all of us quite a lot. And I think because they had moved away from them early in their 20s, their relationship, I don't really know. I don't really know. We, we, we never really talked about it. And I have no memory mm. of my father's emotions during that time. Mm. You know, there was always, I can tell you, there was always the phone call from India, which you know, in the early hours of the morning that brought sad or bad Mm. news. So I do remember that being a part of our lives. But I don't really remember. I think I was totally protected from my father's emotions and feelings. That phone call in the middle of the night from abroad really resonates with me because mm. you know that it was bad news. That's right. And as children, we didn't know what that bad news was, but we knew that, that that would profoundly affect, you know, our parents and that nobody phoned in the middle of the night. And even now that has an impact on me. I don't know about you, middle of the night phone calls, I, you know, it's never good. It definitely does. That's where we are with our families being so far away and the time difference 
that bad news phone call would have a profound effect on my parents. But at the same time, they would protect us from that. We just know that, you know, there was that sickening feeling in your stomach when the phone rang, because obviously the phone would wake up the whole household. And, you know, there's no mobile phones, there's no WhatsApps, there's just the the landline. That's something that I do dread to this day, you know, if there's a text or I do leave my phone on, you know, my mobile phone on all night. I know that um, you're not supposed to. I have, yeah, I have different notifications if if I keep the ring on, but I do turn off the, um, you know, the message notifications or the WhatsApp notifications. I wonder if that's because you're a parent, because I do the same thing and it's always because my son doesn't live with me, um, the same with you. We're always kind of worrying and you just want them to have access to you no matter what time. Okay, so your parents have protected you when they've had their losses. Obviously, then you you lose your father. Can you tell me a little bit about what what age you were and what the process was when, when that happened? So he died in January 1985. The process of that was, you know, the phone rang in the middle of the night And all I can remember is my mum saying Sachi, as in really, really. And and her her voice, because my bedroom was right next to hers and the phone is next to the wall, you know, the wall that joined our rooms, uh, the adjoining wall. And uh, I do remember her just saying really, really. And her voice sounded like she sounded so much like a young woman, you know, her disbelief and uh, her then running to the uh, other, you know, across the hall to my sister's room, uh, my big sister's room, and then grief, tears, screaming. And then, of course, we all got out of bed to see what had happened. So you're a teenager at this point, and this is the first real death you've ever faced? The first one that had impacted me yeah Mm -hmm. and uh yeah I remember it my dad had only been away for a couple of weeks he'd gone to India to sort out my big sister's trousseau (laughs) yeah Yeah, because my sister was going to get married and so he'd gone to get some sort of things that you could only get in India he's done that with your your sister so that must have been some comfort to her that they did something together she was in England still my dad had gone to sort out some, I don't know, dad stuff. In fact, even though my dad had said that this was to sort out my sister, my big sister's trousseau, he didn't go with her. And we still to this day don't really know why he went back. Maybe he knew this is, you know, in some way trying to understand him, you know, with some perspective. I think perhaps he knew he was going to die and he did not want to die in England. And I think because, you know, he he had lost his homeland in partition yeah. and he he actually died at my maternal grandmother's house. Wow. That's where he died. So it was my mum's mum who rang that night. One of those awful calls. Also, do you remember the calls? I think they were called trunk calls back then. There was always a delay between you speaking and them hearing you. So I remember they were always very emotionally charged anyway. So you'd have the, hello, hello, are you okay? 
and then he'd get back, I'm fine, can you hear me? And it's like, yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. And before you knew it, the time was up and that's all they'd managed to get out. But with a you know, difficult call, it would be precise, you know, and it's quite brutal, like your father's died. You know, that's my experience. So I wondered, obviously, because you didn't take that call, when you say your mum sounded like a young girl, you know, it's because she would have had to listen to that information without the echoing. I think it was an echo. I don't know why it did that. They, those calls were difficult. You've seen the chaos, if you like, from the fallout of that phone call. And at what point do you know that your father has actually passed away? Someone told you or you just guessed? or I, I think I just guessed. I think I just guessed. It's a blur. And I've been trying to rack my brains so I could tell you, but I I can't really remember exactly. It's I just remember my mum's words and my sister uh, crying, everybody waking up in the household. Um, my other sister wasn't there. She was at university. My big sister was at university but lived at home. My brother, myself, and my mum. And then what's the process? So it's, you know, faith-wise. Faith-wise, he was cremated in Varanasi. He went, uh, my father's body went to the Ganges and he was cremated on the banks of the Ganges. Now, I didn't go because I was right in the middle of my mock A-levels and my sister, who was at uh, Manchester University, she was doing dentistry, she was in her, in one of her exam years as well. And so it was decided that both she and I would stay at home. So you've been left here and your sister, they've gone to the funeral. Do you feel like you've grieved for him? A lot of people say that if you don't see the funeral, if you don't, you know, actually say get goodbye to them in person, that somehow that doesn't let you grieve? Or do you feel you and your sister did come to terms with the fact that your father had died? You know, the interesting thing is about saying goodbye when you said that just then. My father and I, I was, eight, I was 18 and I was studying and yes, I was sort of this star this little star brain academic. That was one of the ways in which I could please my dad, you know, being very academic and for him to be proud of me was to achieve academically. I was waiting for a phone call from my boyfriend who lived in Essex at the time. Don't ask me how a Northern girl had ended up going out with an Essex boy. I was so excited because I was going to get this call and that when everybody had gone to the airport to see my dad off, I'd be at home studying in inverted commas, but actually chatting to my boyfriend on the phone. Talking on the phone was a problem, especially in the day, uh, because the cheap calls were after six o'clock. Mm -hmm. So my dad was cross with me anyway, because the phone bill was through the roof. And because I was seeing some good for nothing boy from Essex, and also, I wasn't studying. So we were, you know, we were at loggerheads. As most teenagers are with. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then, so my mum said to me that day, she said, please make up with your dad and say goodbye to him properly. And you know what? I did. Thank goodness I did, because I don't know how that would have affected me otherwise, you know, if I hadn't 
had said goodbye and I'm sorry. And, you know, we had had a moment together before he went. I didn't know he was going to die, of course, but, you know, there's something in that. And, you know, with the recent passing of my mum, I feel that making amends or finding a place together Mm. is important. Well, has been important to me. I can't speak for everybody else, but I feel like that has given me a certain amount of peace in my grief. So your mum basically has now helped you in your grief in in a way or to deal with your father passing inadvertently on, on in retrospect by saying, you know, make up with your father. So that's kind of giving you peace in retrospect. So let's move to, obviously, you've just alluded to a little while ago, but your mother dying more recently. And of course, you've got a you know wonderful book. You're writing your experiences about her. So can you tell us what happened with your mother? So my mum was diagnosed with dementia. And she was diagnosed with dementia quite late on into me really thinking that she had dementia. So for quite a few years, I spent with my mum losing her in a different way, but also interestingly enough, discovering her at the same time. I mean, living with somebody or caring for somebody or caring for your mum or your parents or a loved one who are losing themselves, it is a complicated, hard, frustrating, saddening, devastating process to be in. But at the same time, there is a kind of revelation and for me there was a revelation during that time because I felt like I was gifted a opportunity to really try you know we try our hardest to run away from our parents don't we we just kind of like we're you know like quickly we're born right quick teenage right we're leaving home bye Thanks. Yes, <laughs> you know, yes, yes. We're, we're really quick to try and lead our own lives or to get onto that, you know, yeah, onto yeah, that yeah. road about ourselves and our, our lives. It's our time, all of this. Yeah. I think I was really gifted something. I know that it sounds in some way sort of, sort of idealistic, but it isn't, it wasn't. It was really, really hard, but I found something we found something between us that was so so special and I I found out about her I found out about her as a woman in a way now obviously you talk about your mum a lot you know in in your book which is about her remember me and what lessons do you think you learned from taking care of her before she died I think just getting to know her and I think meeting her where she where she was instead of going into the care situation as to what what do I need her to do? You know, it was more like, what does she want at this moment in time? Where is she? Mm-hmm. Because dementia, I don't know how many people can answer this question, but we don't know where the person with dementia is. And they say where they are. So I thought, well, 
let's go there then. So I went on these journeys with her wherever she went. I went with her. That's so beautiful. Uh, you know, and how changeable it was, you know. But I think being a being an actor helped yeah. uh, in a sense because, you know, very suggestible person anyway, <laughs> you know, uh, and always ready to listen and go with. So that was part of my personality anyway. I think that's such great advice. I didn't realise that that's where what I was doing was was helpful, but it is helpful. And, uh, you know, because then the frustrations of she hasn't taken her tablets or the frustrations of, you know, my mum my mom had bowel cancer as well. And that bowel cancer and dementia and colostomy bags, if you put that equation together, that's really hard. I suppose... Because I didn't want to make her anxious. There's uh, some points with dementia. You can be anxious and overly anxious and, you know, a little confrontation on the times as well. Uh, so it was trying to sort of find a way to calm situations where I would feel anxious about going to the bathroom or indeed you know, has she taken her tablets? Because, you know, the tablets were part of keeping her alive and all of those things. It was really complicated, but I kind of found a way in the end. And I think food helped too, food, music, talking about stuff. My mum was a TV addict, so the television would always be on. So there'd be music on the adverts and then we'd go to that music in the adverts or we'd you know, and that would remind her of something or she'd see a child in the advert and that would then spur a memory in her and we'd go there. We just, I suppose, my sisters and brothers would have considered my care rather chaotic. But I made sure that we were both quite steady. And of course, there were times when, you know, the frustrations would take over and, you know, that's, it's so complicated. It's such a complicated journey and, and it's not identical for everybody. A lot of times when someone is caring for someone with dementia, they're trying to make them come to us. And when you said, I went there with her, I thought that was because then the struggle stops. Because all the time that you're trying to bring them back here with us now in the moment, it upsets them. It makes them confused. But you went with her. I thought I thought that was really quite beautiful and an alternative way of looking at dementia. I think so. I think so. I think I was, it's not just, it's not just sort of it happened organically. I did really think about it. And I, you know, I did think about it for some time. There is a, I don't know where this dementia village is, but there is one in Europe. I think it's in, in the Netherlands somewhere. Mm. And I'd read about it, and it's a place where people with dementia can operate. And that was that's the key word. How does a person with dementia, who are they? What are they doing? Where are they? So if they're there, mm. I'm going to go and visit that place where sh she is because there's no point in doing the fight. You know, the tablet will be taken. Yeah. In the calm and in the frustration, the tablet would never be taken. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That's where I came to.
when your mother did die, you said you got into organising mode. Was that a coping mechanism or was that just like things had to be done and you're just putting your grief to the side? Describe the process of, you know, once she's died. I think being, as I said, being an actor has really helped me. A lot of the stuff that I do for a living is pretend. Of course, you try and root it in some kind of authenticity in order to tell the story, in order to live the life of that character that you are portraying, of course. I've done many a play when my life has been, you know, perfectly chaotic and dreadful, and yet I've had to go and perform. Now, I know things are different now, mm. but it's it's always helped in a sense. You know, I call it doctor theatre, so I just put myself into that mode where... you just got to get on with it. If I was there for everybody, I would, you know, I could be there for everybody. I could do it. I can do that. So I did. I I did that. You then obviously took on the role mm. of the organiser because it was mm. down to you to basically organise her funeral. Is that right? Well, I organised the what happened in the crematorium. My sister, uh, my middle sister and my brother organised the food and the venue. My other sister lives in India, so she wasn't as in the community of how it happens over here, if you like. So yeah. my you know, my brother and sister, they did all the things to do with budget and where and when and how and all of those kind of what the, you know, the order of service would look like and all of that. They did that. I did Mum's Cremation Day. What would happen on the day? Who would speak? When they would speak? what music there'd be, where would that happen? But of course I consulted with everybody as well. The producer, if you like, of the funeral. Yes, I was the producer. And it was like an event because our family were very, are very, you know, my my big sister sings, my middle sister sings. They used to sing in a pop band when we were younger. Wow. um, called, Called the Golden Eagles. My dad was the manager. I've just been going through my mum's stuff recently and I found That's amazing. You know, I found some stuff. And yeah, they were in a pop band and they did Bollywood and ABBA. And uh, they were the lead singers. To my faves, to my faves. <laughs> Bollywood and ABBA, if you could only combine that together. <laughs> but we were a performing family and my brother played tabla and he sang we all sang in fact. We were the sort of Gulati Von Trap. <laughs> or the Gulati Five. Was it the, the Jackson Five, like the Gulati? Is it five of you there? It was the Gulati Four. Oh, well, Gulati yeah. Four, yeah. It sounds very comforting to know that everybody in the family had a had a role, that you'd all taken on a task um, and, the, and yeah. divided it out. And then because you had taken care of your mum and you had been there for her to the end, was it a different grief to your father? Yeah, I think so, because I I knew my mum more than I knew my father. So, you know, as with any relationship, when you lose that relationship, if you spend more time with somebody, and, and you know, there is more love shared, then the grief, grief and love are very intertwined, I think. And the, the more you love, the more you grieve, I think, or the more you hate, the more you grieve. You know, this you know, these big emotions can affect how one grieves. I just knew her 
longer. I mean, it's not to say that I don't grieve my father. Of course I do. But, you know, the strange thing is, and I'll share this with you. I had a dream about my dad once, that he was alive. And he was so present. And he only had that dream once in all the years since he's died. And it was almost comforting because it was almost, to me, it felt like he was, he's here. I know that sounds really strange, um, but I feel like he's here. Because once in that dream, he was so tangibly there, he's never gone. Does that make sense? I haven't had that dream. I haven't had that dream about my mum, but maybe my subconscious needed to know that, you know, because he's been gone so long or he was gone before his time or he died before his time. Do you know all of those things come into play? I mean, I can look back now. At the time, I didn't know quite what was happening, but I feel like, I don't know where he is, but I think the characteristics that I possess that are his are very much alive, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, he lives in, in you, and, 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 you know, and the same as for us as parents, Yes, hopefully a bit of us. That performance at my mum's funeral was very much, I felt, I felt my father, you know, I felt him, you know, I'm, produ- I'm producing the show, I'm their yeah, manager, okay. <laughs> you know, I felt I could hear him, <laughs> I could hear him, you know. Yeah. You know, yeah. Hema, Sushma, my sisters, they're going to sing. And in fact, we all sang. We all sang, that is, siblings, grandchildren. Oh, that's beautiful. We all sang. My sister had reworked um, a Beatles song because that was the other, the other band that they used to sing. Which one? All My Loving. And it turned into all our loving. Oh, that's wise. We sang for um, for our for our mum and grandmother. So, do you think the book "Remember Me" comes is somehow a cathartic release, like part of the grief that, that from your mother dying, or did was that just a project that you kind of just slipped into? I just wondered if that was part of grieving to get it down on paper. I know it's sort of a strange thing. I was always going to write a novel about a South Asian girl. I had been approached to write about dementia whilst my mother was alive. And it was difficult to write whilst I was caring for my mum. But it was always in the back of my mind that I would write about this experience or I would write about my mum because I found her journey interesting and fascinating. And one story that had not been told on our bookshelves, you know, up until that point, there has been quite a few stories now. But I felt like social history wise, that this story needs to be told. And if I have the kind of public face to do that, then I should take advantage of that and write this story because you know, were women, South Asian women, mm, mm. ordinary women, mm. or as I like to call my mum, extraordinary women. Mm-hmm. It's you know, my mum married my dad, became a housewife, brought up four children. 
in England, was born in England, interestingly enough. Mm. And all of these things, you know, I wanted a version of our story, my version of our story out there on the shelves because having been in the public eye for so long, I've always had my my words interpreted by other people yes. in the tabloids yeah. or in, you know, just generally when I've done press or when I haven't done press, you know, people have made their version of me and my story to fit their stereotype. And I've felt like, no, let's let's have this out there. Let's let's have a real story about South Asian a South Asian family with that experience mm, mm. in this country. And then what is really amazing is there are so many now stories out there on our shelves about our experiences and where we come together and where we don't, where we fall apart, just like human beings. And then, and I think that I think that's really really important. And obviously, your work in that book, you can see it. And I, in my body of work, I try and do the same sort of thing. You know, whether it was the show that we did together, yeah. Mother Tongues with Fatherlands, or Immigrant Diaries, it's like I think those stories are really important. Mm. I also wonder if it was like a legacy for your son as well. I mean, obviously, you're a mother of, of of a son, same as me. And have you ever spoken to your son about death and and possibly your own death? Sure, I speak about it all the time. Poor guy. <laughs> I do. I speak about it all the time. In fact, when he was younger, the f- I know this sounds really strange, but I brought him up by myself and with yeah. my mum, with my mum yeah. and by myself. You know, without a, a a partner. I suppose my partner became my mum. That difficult conversation I did with the film Bambi. Yes. It's a tough film, and I remember him. Uh, I was in the kitchen, and he was in the living room, and it was a two-up, two-down. He came in. I was just cooking, and he came in, and he's, he was about three, okay? He was three. And he came in with his hands on his hips. He said, Mommy, why did you make me watch that film? <laughs> why? <laughs> And I just said, you know, because, you know, mummy's people are going to not be around forever. Yeah. You know, we come, we go. You'll come and go. And so this was at three. I know it sounds really sort of harsh, but I thought, well, I have to teach him everything. I have to teach him everything. You know, what he learned from my mum was something. And then, what you know, I felt responsible because, you know, there's also the conversation of where is your dad? Yeah. Because there's like, mummy, where's your dad? Well, mummy's dad's died. So has, has my dad died? No. So in order to have those conversations, I had to have those conversations quite early on. Yeah, again, you know, I know I know, we've always connected in the past because we have got, um, you know, similar sort of stories, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, similarly, you know, uh, the, the conversations that I had to have with my son, and he's, it's really weird, even when they're young, they do pick up things. And I remember he said, you always get sad in November, at the beginning of November. Is it because when your daddy died? And I said, yeah, this was when he was little. Mm. And it's interesting that he noticed, you know, 3rd of November every year. <laughs> that he, he picked it up. So going back, I mean, do, have you made a will? Have you spoken about, obviously, as a you know single parent, you do have to, it's, it's not, it's, it, that is something you have to consider your own 
you're their carer. You look after them. You've always been there for them. I made a will. Yeah, you have. Okay. And um, and you've told him. I've told him where the bodies are. Yeah, I've told him that. Yeah, where the bodies are. You tell him, of course, you know, how, how to hide him even further once you've gone. So the heat doesn't. Yeah, you've got to do all that. Um, this is also a South Asian thing. It's just like using death as a blackmail. Like, you know, if you go out with that boy, I will die of a heart attack. And it was like, no, you're not going to die of a heart attack. You're just blackmailing me now, like to a death. Uh, that's a very South Asian thing, family thing to do. It obviously be interesting to find out how, how you know, um, your son thinks. But you've obviously prepared him in a way that I suppose our parents didn't necessarily prepare us. But it's always accepted that's always going to happen. I'm kind of going through the stuff that my mum has left behind now. And my mum was a hoarder. I feel really strangely in this place at the moment where I'm in the same place as her. Yeah. You know, being on the road as an actor, you collect loads of stuff. And, you know, and I'm not talking about things that are really, really important, but like how many nearly finished bottles of body moisturiser can you actually have? (laughs) I've, you know, yeah. but you know, going through my mum's things, there are things like that, as well as sort of really sort of interesting things about our family, but they're all confused. So I feel like one of my jobs whilst I'm alive is to sort things out for him, write him notes, give him clues. Wow, that's exactly what I've been doing. <laughs> because. Yeah. I've got no clues from my mum and uh, it's it's really, it's been a, this process, I'm still in it, uh, it's really tough and it's the hardest thing. I think losing somebody and losing them, them dying and then them leaving behind all these things, it's like a jigsaw puzzle that I can't solve. Yeah, yeah. And that is really frustrating when you are a person like me who needs answers. Answers, yeah. And it's interesting that you're saying that you're trying to prepare your son because I, I that again resonates with me. You know, saying about leaving clues, and then I think is this going to freak him out? Do I? Does he need to see these love letters? Because I was always thinking because he's a creative, I could leave this behind. He could use it. It's like he doesn't need to know this about his mother, does he? It's a really weird thing, or, or, or writing down truths and thinking. If he finds this. Is this going to freak him out? Is this going to need? Is he going to need therapy? Maybe I should leave something in the world for this therapy that he's going to need after all the clues that I've left him. But it's trying to make their journey for grief to grief easier than I guess. I don't want him to hurt in the way, same way. And I'm always thinking. I don't. I no longer fear death. I don't know about you, but I don't fear death. I fear what it will do to those behind me. Yeah, I think I think so. And I think the interesting thing is that you've said about caring for somebody on your own is that you want to protect them from the things that you weren't protected from. That's it. We've got to do the best we can with the tools that we've got and just as, and to try and understand yeah. our parents that they did the best they could with the tools they had and that and then every generation is going to be Definitely. different. So that, that that's absolutely right. Um yeah, just to wrap this section up, just wanted to know where, where your relationship is at with death now. You know, I've thought about that. I thought about that. And you know what? I know this sounds sort of strange, but I look forward to it. Wow. I look forward to it. As much as I look forward to every day yeah. of living, it, it's kind of like a balance for me. 
if I look forward to every day of living, I should, in my head, look forward to every day of dying. That's how it kind of balances for me. Mm -hmm. Would that be acceptance? I've thought about that carefully. Yeah, yes, because I, you know, I'm grateful that I wake up and live the life that will end in death. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. I mean, it's inexorable, it's inevitable, so I might as well be in it like I might as well be in life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, another way to look at it is that every day of life is every day you get up and you live your life, but in death, every day, Mm. well, you're dead. We don't know what happens, do we? We don't know. You're not not in life. (laughs) We don't know what's going to happen. You're not in life. You're in death. You're in death. So you might as well be, you know, just just as, yeah. Yeah, I mean. I know it sounds really strange, but this is me. This is how I process living. Living is dying. Now, you've just reminded me of something. When I was a teenager, after my dad passed away, I read a book called the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, has impacted how I look at death. What did it mean? You know, subliminally, really, to this point in this conversation that I have with you, accepting life is also accepting death. So that's where I am. I think that's a great way to kind of um leave that section there actually thank you thank you for that so it's a little to a little bit more fun although we have had a little bit of fun on the way on this journey already of course of course it's important to know that you know there are funny moments in death there are you know we've all had them and uh, you know you would you've been the same it's it is a journey you know to to death grief grieving but this is the fun aspect with we've got three questions for you here um so firstly how would you spend your last week on earth as i spend the week anyway that's my answer to that as i spend the week anyway i just do you know what i'm a i'm a human being even with a week left i will not meet my deadline (laughs) and and deadline is the funniest word ever because (laughs) you know i think oh i need to do this oh i do this but you know what i wouldn't so let's not change. Let's just do it like I do every week. It's just, <laughs> I've considered this question myself and I was thinking that's true. I wouldn't, I'd write all these letters for everyone. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't find the time. <laughs> and it would just be like a couple of sentences. Yeah, you know, great. I don't even have time to write. So I know, I know, I hear where you're coming from. I just, you know, I wake up in the beginning of the week on a, on a sun, you know, Sunday, Monday, when Monday morning arrives, I go, well, I need to do this, I need to do this. Do I do it? No. So what's going to change? Nothing. Except the deadline, the deadline would be the deadline. That would be dead. Yeah, deadline. Yes, the deadline, dead, deadline, like literally the deadline, and you still can't meet the yeah, deadline. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> well, you know you're going to meet it, but you're just not going to have done anything that you're supposed to do. That's exactly. Like arrange your own funeral and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. So that that's what I do in my last week. Nothing. 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 <laughs> Sit in my pyjamas, watch Below Deck, which is what I, what I normally do. So I'll just carry on doing that, shall I? And perhaps I'll just text my son and say, Mama loves you. Do you know what I mean? Maybe that's it. That's well, that's what, that's what I do okay, in a so week the, anyway. Your... And then by the time he texts back, I'll be dead anyway. So, <laughs> so Yeah, it'll be the but deadline. It'll be, it'll be over. Yeah, it's good. So <laughs> what's your fantasy funeral? This is a good one. 
Anything you Anything want. Anything I want. I just think, you know, I would like... Anything you want. If one if one is what possible, yeah. I'd like to be cremated. I'd like my son to organise my funeral. That would be lovely if he organised it and he cremated and I'd like sort of, you know, him to decide what he wants to do with my ashes. You know, it would be just lovely. I think people would come. We'd have a little song and dance I'd be remembered it would be lovely to be remembered by people it'd be lovely for them to be able to say my name properly (laughs) (laughs) you know for the first time I would like to be called Shobna that'd be lovely Shobna not Shobna Shobna or Shobna or Siobhan I just put simple things and I'd like them to be corrected at my funeral if they say my name wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, By the whole crowd. <laughs> yes. It's Shobna. You know, I'd like everybody to have a dance. Any particular track? What track would they dance to? <gasps> What's a banging track to dance to your, at your funeral? Anything by Prince. I think everybody should have a party. That would be lovely. And there'd be lovely food. Oh, what's the food? What's the food? What's what's the food? What's your favourite dish? It's Punjabi food all the way, all the way. And for people to come and remember and say what they like, really. You know, I don't have to be idolised in any way. (laughs) Do we need to get bounces for your funeral in case anyone gets a bit out of hand and we kick them out? Yeah, and I think there should be plenty of alcohol. That'd be great, all of that. Everybody should just come and have a party, like a house party. For some reason, I'm hearing jump up and down yeah, well, and jump, jump. <laughs> anything, really. It'd be great. And then and then the police are called. Then the police, the are, police called. are called because it's making too much noise. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That's all the of kind that, of party. You know. Yeah, I love it. Love it. I think funerals should be up to the people that are left behind. You can give them a few instructions if you want to leave, you know, to help them and guide them in their grief. Yeah. Because obviously, I hope to help them but then I think my my son knows me well enough to know what I might want so I will I'll write I'll write some of that down actually yeah I would love to be able to read my twitter if I was dead because I'd love to see what people write (laughs) you know yeah (laughs) and block them from beyond the grave I would still like to block anyone as being a little shit I would like to block them yeah. But, you know, it would be so fascinating to be able to read your obituary or your Twitter obituaries. Mind you, Twitter might not even exist. Yes, that's true. We don't know anything, my love. This is the thing. I think, I think that's a great, that is a great fantasy kind of, you know, the build up the funeral, post funeral. I think a lot of people can you know, relate to that. Most people would like to read their Twitter and their Facebook because I want to know what people are saying. Yes. I want to know. I want to know. Um, <laughs> What three words or a short saying or a phrase would you like? I know you're going to be cremated, but would you like kind of as your plaque on your ashes or just something that you'll be remembered by? Okay. I'd say it's a beginning. It's the beginning. Well, that's more than three words, isn't it? But it's it. No, it's it's with an apostrophe. That's one the word. The beginning. The beginning. Yeah. Yeah. It's the beginning. That's great. That's, I love that. Thank you so much for joining us here on Dead Good a podcast about death with me, Sajila Kershey. See you next time. Thank you so much, Shobna Gulati, for joining us today. Thank you. If you've been affected by any of the issues we've discussed today, 
then please do visit our website at stchristophers.org.uk where you'll find resources and support on a whole range of issues. Thanks for joining us here on the Dead Good Podcast, brought to you by St. Christopher's Hospice. I've been Sajila Kershey. Until next time, farewell. Farewell.